Now, my plan, again, for the next couple of months uh, is to talk about conflict resolution, peacemaking. Before we dive into that, though, I just I have a question. You know, when things, when things are uncertain in your life as a Christian, it's helpful to remind yourself of what is sure, right? When, with things that are, are certain. Uh, when there are a lot of unknowns, it's helpful to remind yourself of what you do know. Right, and we get into these situations sometimes where we we don't we don't know. We feel like we're 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 being tossed around, and and it's it's confusing and cloudy. And in those times, I think it's important to really remind ourselves. Okay, even though there's a lot of things I don't know, there are some things that I do know. Um, and and I've been thinking about just you know what are what are some of those things that that we know that ground us when we're tempted to, to be anxious or to despair. And, and one, of the, one of the passages that's just come to my mind a number of times in the last several months is Matthew 16, 18, where Christ simply promises this. He says, I will build my church. I will build my church. It's, it's really a, just a, 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 this, a divine promise of success that there's, the Lord says there's, there's only one church, Christ, we know, purchased that church. He defines what that church is. He bought that church. He, he guaranteed that that church will not fail. Uh, he alone will build it, and it's his church. I mean, there's a lot in that little, <laughs> that little statement, I will build my church. Of course, there's much more uh, around that in Matthew 16, and, and maybe we'll have to come back to that at some point and, and look at that entire, entire section. But it's not, Jesus didn't say, you will build my church. That's not what he told his disciples, right? He also didn't tell his disciples, I will build your church, right? So he didn't say, you go build my church. And he didn't say, I'll build your church. He said what? I will build my church. So, and he talks about how death won't, Prevail. I mean, that, that's, that's not going to stop this thing the Lord is doing. In fact, you can kill more Christians, uh, but you can't kill the church, right? You can send more Christians home, <laughs> right, to be with the Lord, but you can't stop the church because Christ has already purchased those people. So you, you, can't, you can't undo that. And, and it's just the nature of the security that we have, that, that the Lord is going to, to build his church. And I think about how that's connected, this promise to build the church and his promise to save and to keep you. It's, it's like you can't, you can't disconnect what the Lord guarantees to us individually as believers in Christ, that he will save us and he will keep us from the fact that we're a part of this, this entity, the church, right? And the Lord's going to build and keep and secure that as well. So it just reminds us of how sure, sure, our calling is. And sometimes, you know, things are unstable. You get anxious and you just kind of, you know what, the Lord, the Lord is building the church and I'm a part of that. And the Lord is going to save me and he's going to keep me. Uh, it's unstoppable. <clears throat> Spurgeon preached a sermon, <clears throat> excuse me, titled, The Special Call and the Unfailing Result. This was a Sunday night message he preached. I just wanted to read a, a, just a part of this. He says, Beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, let me refresh your memories with your calling. Was there not a day 
the mementos of which you fondly cherish, cherish when you were called from death to life. Fly back now to the day and hour if you can, and if not, light upon a time near it when the great transaction took place, in which you were made Christ forever by the voluntary surrender of yourself to Him. And looking back, does it not strike you that your calling must have been of divine origin? The text says, God called you. Does your experience not prove the same? We thought, perhaps, as the time transpired, that we had had no other call than what came in the Word that was addressed to us through our godly parents, through our Bibles, through the good books that we read. Yet we perceive in looking back, as the crisis passes before us in review, that none of, those, of these things ever could have produced the effect which has been taking place in us. Did we not read the same books year, years before? but they never touched a chord in our hearts. We listened to the same minstrel, it may be, scores of times, but he never could strike a spark into our dark natures. We had our convictions before this, but they were the mere disquietudes of, na- of na- natural conscience, which died away like the morning's hoar frost when the sun rises and scatters it all. Therefore, we conclude that this time it must have been something special, And we think every man that has experienced it will say at once, Yes, I see the finger of God in this. I am absolutely certain it was not moral persuasion. It was not the oratory of the preacher. It was not the earnestness even of my pleading teacher or friend, but the hand of God as clear in my conversion as in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How gracious that calling must have been since it came to you from God came to you irresistibly and came to you with such personal demonstration. What grace was here? What was there in you to suggest a motive why God should call you? Oh, beloved, we can hardly ask you that question without the, t- without the tear rising in our eye. Some of you were drunkards, were profane, were injurious. Many of you cared neither for God nor man. How often have you mocked at God's word? How frequently have you despised God's ministers? How constantly has the holy name of the Most High been used in a flippant, if not in a profane manner by you? And yet for all that, he fixed his eye upon you and would not withdraw it. And when you spurned the grace that would have saved you, he still followed you, determined to save, until at last, in the the appointed time, he got the grasp of you and would not let you go until he had made you his friend, turned your heart to love him, and made your spirit obedient to His grace. I think throughout eternity, if we had this problem to solve, why did He call me? We should still go on making wrong guesses. But we never could arrive at the right conclusion unless we should say once and for all, I do not know. He did as He wished. He will have mercy on whom He will have mercy. He will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. And here let me say, if these things are so, oh, should not this calling of ours tonight evoke our most intense gratitude, our most earnest love? Oh, if he had not called you, where would you have been tonight? When you see the swearer in the street or the drunkard rolling home at night, there you are, there I am, but for the grace of God. Who am I? What should I have been if the Lord in mercy 
had not stopped me in my mad career. <laughs> that, that, is, that is God's effectual call. His effectual call to every believer. And it's the same blood and the same promise that undergirds the church. That same promise that God gives to us that he has called us as believers and will keep us and will preserve us is the same certain call and power and promise that he gives to the church when Jesus says, I will build it. I will build my church. Nothing can separate the individual Christian from the love of Christ and nothing can stop Christ from building his church. It is a guarantee because it is, if you, if you will, it's, it's, it's signed in, in blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. So we've been called by God, and his call is unfailing. And it's in light of this call that we're to do something, that we're to live in a certain way. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the New Testament letter of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. So again, we're going to be looking at a lot of diff- looking at this issue of conflict uh, in a, from a lot of different angles, looking at relationships, thinking through this issue, what it is, how to prevent it, which sometimes it can be. So we want to th- consider how we could prevent conflict, but then in some cases it's unavoidable, and we want to learn how to be a peacemaker and how to resolve conflict biblically. So we're going to look at this from a lot of different angles in the, in the coming coming weeks. Uh, There is a lot of tension uh, in churches today. In fact, uh, as I mentioned not too long ago, I had had this meeting with this couple who was in the middle of of this of this conflict and just trying trying to help them to discern what to do and if they should should stay or leave the church. Just just curious, how many of you have heard about a church in our community, or maybe it's even out of our community or even out of state, but I've heard, uh, heard about a church in conflict in the last 12 months or the last year. Just like you've talked to a friend or someone that goes somewhere. How many, how many of you heard of, heard, heard of this? Okay. So this is, this is very, uh, very common um, across our, our nation. We've got many, many pastors who have been uh, fired or forced to resign. Uh, again, we, we interact with, with guys a lot uh, that are actually in some of these situations. Um, more than that are pastors who serve in churches that force the previous pastor to resign. So you've got, you're, sometimes you're talking to, 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 to pastors and, and, and ministers, preachers who are going into those situations, and yet there's this, this history of, of guys that have been, uh, that have been run off uh, in that in the, in the history and the background of that particular church or ministry. Uh, and along those lines, pastors generally don't stay long at churches. Uh, the average tenure is between three and four years. And, and even, of even greater concern, the average pastoral, pastoral ministry is only about 14 years. So, so when I say tenure, I'm talking about the, 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 the three to four year thing. That's guys, they'll stay in a particular church for an average of three to four years and then they'll go on and do something else. But if you look at the whole, this enti- the entire ministry of a man, the average pastoral ministry is, is only in that 
13, 14-year range. And when you ask pastors why they are leaving pastoral ministry, it's in large part because of all of the tension that exists in the churches where they have been serving, which is a grievous thing. Uh, It's a grievous thing when you consider all that goes into preparing a man for ministry, and now that ministry is only lasting 14 or 15 years. So I think of Andres here. I mean, just the, the, the work, right, brother? I mean, all of the work that goes into preparing for that, and then you get a guy that gets, is, has taken the time and devoted the time and energy to get through all of that, to prepare himself for that, and then to actually get into it and for it to be that short-lived is, is really a sad, a sad thing. So this morning I want to examine a passage of Scripture that looks at relationships in general, but conflict in particular. And I want you to think for a moment, where are you feeling tension in a relationship right now in your life? So let's not run into this and think that I'm talking about those other guys, right? So this isn't just about those other people. Okay, I want you to think on a very personal level. Where are you sensing and feeling tension in your relationships right now, and I want, you to, I want you to keep that relationship in mind as we look at this section from Ephesians 4. Beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, why why is Paul writing what he is writing? Well, imagine in this relatively new thing called the church... You have Jews and Greeks or Gentiles all together in this new community. So you have Jews with all of their cultural background and their traditions and all of their heritage coming together with what they would definitely look at as pagan, unclean Gentiles. So this, this, when Paul talks earlier in chapter 2 about this wall of division being demolished and broken down, between Gentile and Jew, you just have to realize that is, it's easy for us to read that and think, oh, what's the big deal? Okay, but this was a, this was a massive thing for the Jews to get their minds around. It would be like, it'd be like them saying, oh, don't worry about the leper. He's not unclean. I mean, it's like in their minds, they can't, when they think of Gentiles, they, they just, there's this, they instantly, there's this sort of a reaction to want to recoil, Okay. So you, you have these Jews with all of that. You have these Gentiles coming together in this new community. And the Lord is putting them together in, in, this, in this thing called the church. And just think for a minute about our church. I mean, here you are. We have different people from different parts of the country. We've got the Detmans way back there. We've got California, right? We've got them represented from all over, Okay. I mean, that's an unreached people group, if I've ever seen one, right? We need to send missionaries uh, into, Cal- into California. <clears throat> but we've got those from California. We've got some, how many Florida? Floridians? Any Floridians here? 
No, no Floridians? What about Nebraska? Where's Matt? Matt's not in here. Okay. But we, we come from all over. I'm actually a Marietta native. Not, uh, don't, don't run into many, many of those these days. But we have, we have all kinds of ethnic backgrounds mixed together here this morning. We even have people from various denominational backgrounds, right? So we've got some people that maybe uh, this is a Southern Baptist church. We maybe have people that have been a part of a Southern Baptist church all their life. We have, I'm sure, how many of you have background in, say, Presbyterian church? Presbyterian. What about Methodist? Methodist church? So, I mean, and you could add, you could add more to that list. So we have even that. We, we have, we've come from different contexts where maybe you did things a certain way. So not really tied to where you're from or how you grew up uh, in your home or, or necessarily the denomination that you uh, are more familiar with, but even things like how we do things in the church. So you, you, you may have come from a Southern Baptist church and you come into Faith Community Church and they do things differently than they did in your Southern Baptist church, right? So issues of the Lord's Supper. How do you do the Lord's Supper? How often do you do the Lord's Supper? Missions, different kinds of ministries or programs, different styles of music. I mean, this is right, one of the most common, one of those very common phone calls that we get, inquiries. You know, Darby typically fields this, but it's people wanting to know what, what's your worship like, what's the music like, those kinds of things. So you can even have come from, there can be a lot of similarities, but when you get into the details of those kind of things, there's differences, different experiences, different opinions about that. In fact, and we'll get to this eventually, but those sometimes are the things that create the divides in the body of Christ. It's actually those smaller, relatively smaller issues that actually uh, divide us. So just think about our church. The Lord has brought us together at Faith Community with all of these sorts of differences, which makes this passage undeniably relevant for us. So this is what the Lord was doing in the first century and what he continues to do even today, bringing these different people together in one, into one body, into one church. Now, there's two main points here I want to look at. We're going to probably only get through the first one today, and then we'll pick up, finish this passage uh, next Sunday. But if you are a note taker, we just want to first consider what I would call the motivation for dealing with with relationships in a gospel-saturated way or a gospel-centered way. The motivation for dealing with relationships in a gospel-centered or saturated way. Again, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now what does Paul mean when he refers to walking worthy of the calling? F.F. Bruce here says this. He says, Those who have been chosen by God to sit with Christ in the heavenly places must remember that the honor of Christ is involved in their daily lives. In other words, as a believer, I am carrying the name of Christ. Right? That's, that's what I'm doing. I'm carrying the name of Christ now because, because I'm part of this thing called the church. So... You, 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 might, you might even think of this letter as, as having two parts. You, you might look at this, and some of you are familiar with the way that these, some of Paul's letters break down, but you could say about the first three chapters, 
of Ephesians. The first three chapters you might title, Christ is the head of the body, the church. And you might title chapters 4 to 6, Now Live Like It. Christ is the head of the church. Chapter 4, verse 1, now live like He is. Right? Live like He is. If Christ is your head, Paul's simply saying, now live like He is your head. But what does it mean that Christ is the head of His church because of the gospel? Well, go back. If you'll go back to Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll just just sort of go through here. There's, we won't do much explaining, but just look at some of these texts. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So Paul says, if you're saved, you have this new relationship in Christ. Verse 4, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him, in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him, verse 7, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. So you think about what everything that Paul says there, okay, which basically says you didn't do a whole lot, right? I mean, this is all about what God has done for you. And then you think back to what he says in Ephesians 4, verse 1, where Paul says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. What is Paul doing? Well, he's simply saying that Christians, if we're we're talking about this issue of conflict, Christians are called to respond to conflict in a way that is remarkably different than the world. Because we, because we are believers in Jesus Christ and we have the gospel operating in our lives, we are capable of supernatural acts of grace and supernatural acts of forgiveness. In other words, he's saying, because you have received grace, you can extend grace and should. Because you have been forgiven, you can forgive and should. And, and we, can, we can display the very things that he'll mention there in Ephesians 4, humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance, he says, for, for one another in love. Now, what, what comes to mind when you think of the word gospel? Just gospel, what's the first thing that pops in your head? What's that? Good news, what else? What other terms come to mind? Truth, what? What's that? Okay, the election, is that what you said? Okay, his calling, what else? Resurrection, what else? Oh, resurrection, I'm sorry. The cross, salvation, grace, peace, love, forgiveness, or we might even say in richer terms than that, Reconciliation, redemption, adoption, and that's everything that Paul just talked about in chapter 1. So what is he saying in chapter 4? He's saying that, that the way that you relate to each other, because we are called to respond to relationships in a way that is vastly different from the world, is if, if 
Christians are the most forgiven people in the world, then they should also be the most forgiving people in the world. If Christians have been shown the most grace, we ought to be the most gracious people. If Christians have, sh- have been shown the most mercy, then we ought to be the most merciful. If we have been shown the most kindness, then we should be the kindest people in the world. So you kind of get, get what Paul's saying to these Jews, and he's saying to these Gentiles that, that, they, that have been brought together in the church. He's saying that you have been called effectually, powerfully, in an unstoppable way. Back, back in, in fact, he mentions this specifically back in chapter 1, verse 18, that when he's praying, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened that, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. So he's, he's said all these things. You've, you, you have been chosen. You have been forgiven. You have been wrapped up in God's wisdom and purpose. You have been given the Spirit as a pledge. You have been given an inheritance. You have been adopted into God's family and made joint heirs with Christ. You've been called. Now live up to that. Live up to that calling. Live up to who you are. And just to follow the context a little bit more, you can go on to chapter 2. Again, a very familiar section here too is verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, <clears throat> so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So, chapters 1 to 3 aren't about the doctrine and... Or, 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 they're, not, they're not about doctrine and Christ being the head of His body, the church, and then in chapters 4 to 6, these are just Paul's random thoughts about how to live the Christian life. Actually, chapters 4 to 6 are about the good works that we were created for, and they're about the specific application of the truth found in chapters 1 to 3. So when Paul says there in verse 10, you're created for good works, you say, well, what are those things? Well, then you, when you get to chapter 4, he's going to tell you for three chapters what those things are. And so when he, when, when he gets to chapter 4 and he starts listing, if you will, the good works that he considers it important for us to know and to do, guess what's at the top of the list? In fact, if you were to come up with a list, if I were to say, let's come up with a list. i got a whiteboard. We want to write in all of the things that should be included on the good works list for the Christian. What are the kinds of things you think we'd put up there? What are the kinds of good works the Lord wants us to do as followers of Christ? What are some of those things he wants us to do? Pray, extend hospitality. All right now. Don't get ahead of me. Okay. That's the, that's the Sunday school answer, right? Jesus, right? Okay. Uh, what else? What are the things we'd say? All right, Bruce, now don't, you're not supposed to say that one. You're not supposed to be looking at the ver- verses 1 to f- 2 of chapter 4. You're supposed to say things like mercy ministry and evangelism and singing on the worship team and serving in the nursery. Hello. By the way, we could always use more nursery workers. 
giving our money to meet needs, sharing our faith, working on the setup team. Where's Justin? Amen? Where's Justin? Right? Justin once Justin said, that's the first thing Paul should have said. <laughs> Therefore, I implore you to join the worship team or the setup team and the breakdown team, right? And those would be great suggestions. I mean, those would be great suggestions. And we know we're supposed to do those things. We're supposed to be hospitable and share our faith and all of that. But if we made that list, what, what we would put at the top is probably not what Paul would put at the top or has put at the top, which has to do with how we treat one another in the body of Christ. Which, by the way, isn't just a theme that we find in the book of Ephesians. You know, sometimes we think, we might think to ourselves, surely there was a time in the church, some pristine time when the church wasn't experiencing conflict and everybody was just getting along and there wasn't any tension. Of course, you see glimpses of peace and unity in the very early days of the church in the book of Acts. From Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 through Acts chapter 5, we find the disciples and members of the early church worshiping and serving, the scriptures tell us, in, with one mind and with one accord. But as early as chapter 6, we learn about a complaint that arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So there was a complaint, or you might say the people were grumbling. There was a division, and the apostles had to figure out how to solve the problem. So we may wish that the church was always just experiencing peace, and everybody was just loving one another and getting along, and nobody was complaining, and all the needs were being met, and conflict wasn't anywhere on the radar, but that's just not the case. And the New Testament does not shield us from that reality. In fact, you can go through just about every epistle in the New Testament and think about tensions that were going on in that body of believers. You can go to almost every every letter in the New Testament, and if you ask the question sort of going into it, what was the the conflict? (laughs) Right? Where was the tension? And you kind of read it through that framework... it's it's interesting to see what pops out. So the Bible's very straightforward about these things. We live on a fallen planet with other fallen people. We might say we live in a Genesis 3 world, and it's unrealistic to think that we're going to live with no tensions in relationships. that, That is what life is about. So we'd better learn how to work through these times of tension and these conflicts. And thankfully, the Bible doesn't leave us without help, right? The Bible doesn't just point to the issue and say, here's the problem. The Bible says, here's the problem, and here's how to resolve it. Here's how to work through that. In Philippians 4, Paul urged two women in the church who were apparently upset with each other to live in harmony, a situation which evidently influenced what Paul had to say to that church in general. He says this in Philippians 1.27, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ." Again, it's interesting because Paul's, Paul's eventually, he's talking about this issue of conflict, but what does he keep going to? He keeps going to the gospel. He keeps saying, "...live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ." So that, he says, whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. 
So what was Paul's concern? His concern was about their reputation because of the conflict that was going on in the church. Philippians 2, he goes on, make, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Down in verse 14, do all things without grumbling and disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. So Paul's concerned about our testimony because of the gospel. He just cannot disconnect those things. He cannot disconnect the conflict and the way that the church deals with that and the testimony that they have and what the testimony they have says about the gospel. He just cannot separate those issues. So back to Ephesians 4. What is our motivation? Our motivation is to walk in a manner worthy or to live in a way consistent with our calling. And what is our calling? We are part of this thing called the church. And it's not just you... You're carrying the name of Christ with you. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to respond to conflict in a way that is remarkably different than the world. We know how the world responds. We know how the world handles conflict. Right? I mean, we see that around us all the time. But we're to be gospel-centered, gospel-loving, gospel-driven people. So we, we've, we've looked at what Paul says is the motivation or the motive for dealing with relationships in a gospel-centered way. And we'll look at verses 2 and 3 next time uh, and talk more about the method of how to do that. So he basically says this is, what, this is the fuel for doing it. The fuel for doing it, the basis, the foundation for being gospel-centered in the way that we deal with our relationships is, is the gospel. It's the fact that we've been called. It's the fact that we've received mercy and God's kindness and forgiveness and redemption and adoption and all those things that he's covered in those first three chapters. That's the motivation. He'll go on to talk about the method. What's interesting when he gets to the method is that he doesn't give us maybe what we're looking for. Because we're looking for that how-to. Like, give me the four steps on how to deal with conflict. Paul doesn't go there. He actually tells us, in a way, what the method is, but the method actually is a list of traits. It's like, so if you, if you want to do this in a gospel-centered, gospel-honoring way, resolve conflicts, you have to have these attitudes in your life. And here's the thing. If you don't have these attitudes in your life, it doesn't matter what your method is. I mean, you can go through the method, right? You can follow the steps, but if you lack the qualities and the attributes that Paul goes on to talk about in verses 2 and 3, it's not going to work. In fact, it's probably going to make matters more difficult and more challenging. So we'll get to that next time. But let me just answer one, one more question before we break here. Why, think about this question, why does God allow his name to be dragged through the mud? 
Why does God allow his name at times to be dragged through the mud? Especially in light of the fact that God values unity and desires us to work hard for it and to guard it. And over and over we're told to love one another. This is the mark of the Christian, right? John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So if, if, if there's anything that, that could confirm to the unsaved world that Christianity is false, it would be conflict. Right? I mean, that's, that's the way you would, you would tend to think. That if, that's, if, if, they, if they know that we know God based upon our love, then it seems like the thing that would convince the world that what we believe is not true would be conflict. So we know that, and in light of the fact that God says repeatedly that he will not allow his name to be defamed. Isaiah 48, 11 says, For my own sake, for my own sake I will act, for how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. So it's, it's, it's crystal clear, the, the, Lord, the Lord is really concerned about His name. He is really deeply concerned about His name and His reputation. And we should be living to make Him more famous, not defaming His name. But it's also true that there's nothing like church conflict for having the potential for people to mock God. So it's like, God is all concerned about His glory and He's definitely telling us to guard these things and He's telling us that conflict is a reality. I mean, He's not shielding us from that reality. So that's sort of, I think these things come in. It's like, well, so why does God allow it then? Why does God allow it? If God emphasizes unity by sacrificial love for one another and He is highly committed to His name not being profaned, then why is he willing to allow his name to be dragged through the mud? Why doesn't he intervene? Why doesn't his spirit melt hearts? Why doesn't he just bring revival? Could it be that God is so committed to our growth in holiness that he allows his own reputation to be soiled? I mean, isn't it, in a sense, isn't that what the cross is about? Our Lord allowing His name to be cursed and His reputation to be brought low so that we could be saved. Could it be that He is allowing so much conflict in His church for a similar reason? Allowing this to happen not only for our salvation, but for our sanctification and growth in Christ knowing that the pressure of church conflict will produce growth and holiness in his children. If you live the Christian life long enough, you may come to realize that some of your greatest times of spiritual growth were because of conflict. Sometimes conflict in the church. That God was using those times to humble you, to soften you, 
to force you to deal with problems with others instead of running or pretending that tensions and conflict did not exist. Forcing you to your knees, stirring you to search for answers and to trust God. So yes, God causes all things to work together for good to those who belong to Him, but it's much deeper than that. It's much richer than that. God is so committed to your growth and the growth and holiness and the purity of His church that He is even willing to allow His name to be stained. And thanks be to God for that. I mean, folks, I don't understand it. I don't, I don't always have, I don't always understand why the Lord has got me in a particular situation. Myself, individually, I don't know why he always has my family in a particular situation or my marriage in a certain situation or our kids in a situation or this church in a situation. But I know this, God is deeply concerned about his reputation and yet somehow in his wisdom, he allows these things to happen because I think, Part of that, at least, part of the reason behind that is that God is so committed to our growth. And he uses these times to purify us, to sanctify us, to drive us to him, to be, to be more dependent upon him and his power and his grace. So we've looked at the motivation for handling relationships. We'll come back next time. We'll talk about those attitudes and qualities that we must have before we ever even get into the how to, sort of the, okay, but what if someone sin? what if someone offends me, or what if I've sinned? I mean, how do I begin to work through these relationships in a way that would honor the Lord before we ever get into the discussion about what our responsibility is in those, those specific things? We've got to nail this thing down about the qualities that are necessary in our lives, or else, again, it's, it's just going to be, it, it will just turn out to be a train wreck if we don't. So we'll come back next time. We'll spend the bulk of our time next week looking at verses 2 and 3. I think it's something that will really, really be, be a blessing and be helpful to us. Okay? All right, folks, thank you for your time.